Tonight, it's a real pleasure to welcome back Mike Bardick, who's going to share photos and videos and discuss his experiences exploring the ocean at night. Mike is an avid diver and photographer whose work concentrates on the macrofauna of the Verde Island Pass in the Philippines. He conducts photo safaris, he lectures, gives seminars, and specializes in small benthic animals like frogfish and nudibranchs, but he has a remarkably diverse portfolio of images of all kinds of marine life. His work has been published in Sport Diver and California Diver magazines, among others, and it's also featured very prominently in our exhibit of plankton in our new art gallery. He's very generous with his images, and he's enriched this institution. It's my pleasure to welcome back our friend, Mike Bardick. Please join me in welcome. Good evening. How's everybody? Survived the LA traffic? Thank you, everybody, for coming out. Thank you, Jerry, for having me again. You know, it's always, it's always remarkable to me when, I, when I'm asked to speak someplace, and then even really more remarkable when they ask me back. So this is, this is really a, a pleasure and an honor to be here. Now, before we get started, how many divers do we have in the audience? Anybody? Scientists? Okay, so the people, a couple of people keep me honest tonight. Maybe uh, can give me some pointers what we're actually seeing. And has anybody else experienced blackwater diving? Okay, one person. Wow. So uh, it's going to be fun. Let's do this. So I, I like to start out with this illustration. I, I love it. When I, especially when I see old illustrations like this, uh, you know, I don't know when this one was penned. I think this is your quote off one of your emails. Anyways, uh, because, you know, it says to me that there had to be some kind of creatures like this hundreds of years ago in our oceans maybe still today lurking down below, who knows. But, you know, what would our oceans be without uh, these types of monsters lurking, you know? And it's really, uh, it would be a sad thing to think uh, what our oceans would be like without our imaginations so closely entwined. Uh, I love getting into the oceans uh, in different areas. And, you know, it's really hard to imagine the beauty of our oceans unless you try to engage it on as many different fronts as you possibly can. And to really see the scope of what's out there, you need to travel around and, and to see it, and not just in the areas, but the different times of the day, and also offshore, not just onshore, not just at the, on the reefs or the sandy slopes or in the kelp forest, but to really get out there into the open ocean. And, uh, and that's what we're gonna be talking about tonight. And that's where I find myself diving the most. And, um, in the open ocean at night. So has, like I said, only one person has done blackwater diving with me before. You could imagine what, uh, what diving in the open ocean at night is like. It's really like just throwing yourself into the inky black water. And, you know, a lot of people are kind of afraid of that, right? You think you stand on a pier, for instance, and you look out of the open ocean and you don't want to fall in the water because you think there might be a monster like in the beginning of this talk, the illustration, you know, the imagination runs wild. But once you get in the water, let me tell you, the imagination doesn't slow down. There's somebody already at work creating these amazing, amazing animals.
This video will give you an idea of what it kind of looks like once you immerse yourself in this pitch black atmosphere.
Yeah, that video is on loan to uh, to me from Nanette Van Antwerp. Um, I like to joke and say, oh, she did all that in one dive. Actually, it took more than a year and a half, almost two years, to put those images, uh, the short clips together into one long video. But uh, so many different animals can be experienced in the night ocean, and uh, we're going to talk about just a sliver of them tonight. Um, so we refer to this type of diving as blackwater diving when we're out exploring in the um, at night. And... Um, what we do is we, we explore basically the top 100 feet of the epipelagic zone, which is the 600-foot zone and upwards, where the sun basically shines the most during the daytime. But uh, at around 600 feet, that's where the, the light falls off, and a lot of the planktons will come together in that very dark area. And then in the evenings, they will begin to drift up in, the, in a, something they call the vertical migration and uh, disperse to feed. And then that's when we're going out to take advantage of that, the upward migration of the plankton with our powerful lights to attract the subjects and to photograph them. So the target subjects vary in different, uh, different states and different uh, ranges of, of development. Different subject matter goes anywhere from small, tiny jellyfish to, uh, you know, uh, to large subjects. As a matter of fact, we have some beautiful images at the end, but in everything in between. And it's just, you never really know what's going to come in out of the dark, uh, what's going to be attracted to your lights, and that's part of the excitement of being out there. Many of the subjects that we encounter have never been seen before uh, by, you know, by science. They're still really amazed. Or a lot of scientists will be studying subjects that have been sent to them, and they'll only see a stage of, of a subject, just, again, like a sliver of the lifespan of the subject. So we're able to actually shoot photos and video of these subjects in the wild. So it's very valuable in that state. Uh, and for me personally, what I really like the most about diving in the same area or the same bay is that I've really become familiar with the water and the subjects that live there. And um, I'm, I've been able to engage what we think are the same subjects over and over and kind of see their behavior, see how they grow and to have multiple encounters with the same subjects. And that is so valuable. And to be able to photograph these things, it's really just an amazing experience. One thing's for sure, if you've experienced a really good blackwater dive, you'll be hooked. And most of the time, I've, I've taken people from every different stage of life and, and walk of life to do these dives who are very nervous or very confident, and it doesn't make any difference. Once you hit it really nice, that's basically the only type of diving you want to do after that. It's very relaxed, very comfortable, and uh, tonight we're going to talk about all this stuff. So hopefully you'll enjoy tonight's talk. This is basically where I live uh, in this area here, in an area called Batangas. Manila is here. This is the island of Luzon. Anybody been to the Philippines before? Okay, so we have a few visitors. Uh, and we, where this star is here is basically where I'm, I do most of my diving. It's part of the Verde Island Pass, and these two bays are fed fresh ocean water every day with the tidal surge, to, you know, the, as the tide comes in and out. And then you have the ocean-driven uh, current. So we have two different types of current and, and tides that interact in these bays. And it's a fresh supply of subjects that come in on a regular basis. This is the gear that I use to conduct these dives. This is my downline here. It's 100 feet of rope. It's weighted. And here are some of the lights that I use. I use approximately anywhere from 50 to 100,000 lumens of light. And uh, we drop it down into the water here, and we use this ball at the top. 
so the boat can actually see the buoy and, and, and it drifts and floats. We're free, we're not connected to anything, so we can, um, basically it's a very relaxed dive. We used to tie off the, the light line onto the boat, and of course, anytime the wind came, it would take the boat away and we'd be stuck in the middle of the water with no lights. So we decided, you know, if we want to take guests out to do this on a repeated basis uh, and bring them back alive, we have to figure out a better way to do this. So that's why we went to the buoy method. And uh, it's very effective, very, very good way to do this kind of diving. This is my camera. It's nothing too fancy. My, <laughs> my, my actual camera is on the inside. It's, this is the airtight case. My strobes, standard 60 millimeter lens. Timing is everything, especially in the Blackwater world. Now, Mother Nature is always going to throw in her little say. It doesn't matter. So, uh, but we try to get as close as we can to figuring out the, the true formula of what this thing's all about so we can go out there and hit the mother load every time. But you'd be surprised. You, you can dive what seems to be the optimal uh, settings of, of the, you know, the season and the night and the tide. But uh, sometimes, like I said, Mother Nature has a different, different way of seeing things. What I like to do now is I use an app. I used to have the, the maps from a California Academy of Science and read the maps and study them. But then I discovered you can just get an app, download it from the internet, psh, touch it, and you can see what's below you. It's an amazing thing. So we look for um, ridges. This is all in meters. So we, we you know, look for ridges like this here, 610 or 630 feet, basically, which ranges up to 46 feet. And, and so forth. So I look for areas like this where it's a, a long shelf or a long slope underwater, any kind of an anomaly that's going to help push the water up uh, during these current times, like a high, high tide cycle or low tide cycle, and during a full moon or during a new moon. New moon's actually the best, but we try to get out during these times. It really pushes the water. It'll force it up, or if the incoming tide's coming in, uh, it pushes the subjects in, kind of like to the edge of a swimming pool if you think about it. And then we try to time that uh, with the moon and then also with the tide. So we look at these things. In other words, we don't have a set time every night. We can't say we're going out at 7 o'clock tonight because we want to go to bed by 9. doesn't work like that. We want to go out when it's optimal. So some nights we leave at 7.30, 8.30, 9.30. We're getting back at 2.30, 3.30 in the morning. And uh, it's, it's a lot different than your regular day diving. This is what it looks like in our little bay, waiting for the sun to set and setting up the rigs. You can see the lights on the, I think these, this is the bay, the mainland. So we're probably at several thousand yards offshore and probably guessing around 600 feet of water. Typical night dive. Plankton and the planktonic drifters. This is, this is where it gets really fun. So in a nutshell, this is basically what we can see. Um, all these different subjects ranging from jellyfish, snails, uh, what's this guy? Little nautilus, argos, sea elephants, blanket octopus, all kinds of different stuff. A lot of these subjects come in um, on, a, on the drift like we we're talking about because they can't swim against the current, they're pushed in. But then a lot of them also drift up from the bottom. So you get a combination of subjects uh, that, that come into the bays at night. This is some of the kind of common subjects that we'll see. Larval sea anemones. Now you know that everything that you see on the reef and all the fish that you see swimming around, except for sharks and rays, 
uh, everything spends a period of its time in the open ocean developing, including anemones and, of course, different snails and worms, and all these things, fish. They all spend a period of time developing in the plankton. And then uh, once they get strong enough, they settle to the sand. If this guy, Prosobranchia veliger, uh, very, very beautiful. This will turn into a, some kind of a snail. I'm not sure. There's, I don't know, thousands of varieties of snails, right, on the ocean floor. But uh, the foot on this one is very, very beautiful. This is not a bikini drifting through the water, although it might look like it. They're actually mating. A couple of pteropods. Pteropods, very, very common, uh, two winged little subject. And um, it's really part of the food chain in the plankton world. Smaller planktons are consumed by whales, and the larger planktons eat the smaller planktons, and so forth. Um, some without shells, some have shells. So, you know, these guys are, are very small, maybe the size of a, a pea. And you'll see a lot of this stuff. These are, these are what you really start seeing the most of. Once we put the lights in the water, we take about a half an hour to get the rig all set up and get ourselves geared up. And the, you'll see a, a cloud of planktons kind of coming around the line. And a lot of this stuff is actually moving and kind of moving around underwater. You'll see it, and you'll know it's going to be good. If you see this stuff moving around, you hop in, and, you know, it's really a lot of fun, very engaging. So there's a pteropod. It's spawning. It's got the eggs out. Here's another one. Not sure if this one's spawning or feeding. I've seen them suck those little, uh, looks like eggs. I've seen them pull them in. But a lot of these types of subjects are mucus feeders, so they'll build these mucus kind of nets and trap other organisms and suck them into feed. Guess what this is? If you can read, it's there. I <laughs> put it on top. It's a nudibranch, yes. Very nice. I think there's one or two different kinds of pelagic nudibranchs that are described. This one won't settle to the, to the bottom. It'll spend its life just drifting and um, looking really cool. Very small, very small subject. This is a pteropod. So this guy, this guy swims around and just eats smaller pteropods. His mouth is open and uh, just a huge appetite. Swims around. Remember that movie, Moonraker? Anybody? Moonraker to open up? Okay, one person. Thank you. It opens up. It just swims around like that and, and eats. Very light sensitive. So the, once the light on my camera hits it, he takes off from the other direction. So very hard to photograph. This guy, a heteropod, very small. These are important as well. We talked about this briefly before, uh, the ocean's uh, acidification, which is ov obviously becoming a problem. This has been a very good case study for science um, who, who they, they look at the shells and they, they're thinning out, thinning, thinning, thinning. So they don't know how many more millions of years these guys are going to be able to produce shells. Here's another pteropod. This one is actually... <laughs> I put it on here, actual size. No, it's not that actual size. <laughs> it's like a, a quarter of an inch. <laughs> Crabzoids are another form of subjects that we see a lot of. And the crabs basically have about 17 different stages of development. They have a, a megalope size uh, stage, which varies. They go for a little while in the megalope stage, then into a zoe stage. Either that or it's zoe first. Anybody? I think it could be Zoe first. could have it backwards. I'm more of a photographer than a scientist, so you have to bear with me on that one. But they'll, they'll go through so many different stages. And again, if you think about how many different crabs there are, 
there's literally thousands upon thousands of crabs, different types, on the bottom. So when you see these guys, it's not really, you're not really sure what kind of crab they're going to be eventually. But here are some various stages, the megalope and the zoe, this guy over here, which we'll look at. And here's, here's another type of uh, a crab zoe, which is molting. So these guys will molt probably two or three times a night, I would say. And uh, they tend to do that very quickly. You'll see one, and it just looks weird. If something's wrong with it, and all of a sudden, its skin pops off. It's an amazing thing to see it. And you just, you know, you try to capture photos of it. Happens very quickly. This one looks like a giant mosquito, although it's very small, maybe the size of your pinky nail. In fact, a lot of these subjects are very, very small, uh, which helps with today's modern SLR cameras underwater. You're able to shoot these very small subjects and then crop them down a little bit. So this guy, um, I'm really happy that it's small and, and doesn't fly around. Could you imagine this thing sticking you in the arm or something? <laughs> wow. Jellyfish are an amazing subject. They have been around since the beginning of time. Uh, they're very capable, very strong. Remarkably, they don't have any brains and they're heartless. Somehow they can survive, and um, they not only survive, they do it well. Now here's some different types of comb jellies. There's a lot of different varieties of comb jellies. Now you know the difference. The regular jellyfish will pulsate through the water and ambulate you know, by pumping water and moving along. And the, the comb jelly actually has little rows of cilia, and they will move and ambulate the whole body of the subject through the water, they also produce light. They both have tentacles, they both feed using tentacles, but the structure is a little bit different. I heard a quote which I really love, which is, the jellyfish are nothing more than organized water, and I really believe that, because when they're trying to study these guys, and they're bringing them up from these deep sea dredges, they just turn into jelly, and it's very difficult to study these kinds of subjects, unless you get in the water with them. So, that there's another reason why uh, this kind of diving has become popular uh, for science. Different kinds of comb jellies, very beautiful to see at night. And they can get very large too. It's not unusual to see subjects like, like this guy, it's a, a spiny, um, spiny lobster larvae living on top of different comb jellies or jellyfish. Um, that kind of relationship is very common actually. Here's a shrimp right in a jellyfish. These guys tend to spin around. It's a pretty large-sized shrimp on a very small jellyfish. So it's, you know, pretty top-heavy. And you don't really know who's driving this thing when you see it underwater. If it's the jelly in command or if it's the shrimp trying to steer the boat around, it's, it's pretty funny to watch. They spend a lot of time spinning. <laughs> so here we have uh, a feeding jellyfish with some kind of little organism inside. This guy right here, the famous box jelly, you do not want to touch this guy. Very, very bad medicine. These tentacles are really put the hurt on you. But it's got a fish in here, and it's digesting a fish. And here we have a little uh, jellyfish with some kind of a uh, different organism on the top here. I'm not sure what that guy is there, but it's very small. A lot of times we see these little isopods, and this is probably an isopod living on top of the jellyfish. So I don't know if you know how big an isopod. We're talking, again, smaller than a probably infant's fingernail, fingernail, very, very small, and of course the jellyfish with it. The immortal jellyfish is one of my favorites because they can basically live forever, which is why they name them immortal, right? Uh, 
what happens is they can get to a specific size and after they reproduce, they can revert themselves back to the polyp. And then over a period of time, when they choose to, they can go back and, and grow again until they can reproduce and they do so. And then they can go back to the polyp, depending on the conditions that they're living in or what, it's, you know, what, what their habitat or area. Imagine if, if it gets sucked into the bilge of a ship, for instance, in a warm environment, and then that ship goes to the Antarctic. You know, that jellyfish isn't going to do so well in that strikingly cold water. So it can revert itself back into a polyp, and maybe 100 years later, it drifts back into the warm water. It can start all over again. So here it is. These guys are very small. The bell, again, very, very small. But if you look at the tentacles, really, really beautiful. So when we see these things, it might be the size of a dime uh, entirely with those tentacles out. But once it pulls in, and they do very often pull in, and then it's, it goes back, the bell is very small again. So very difficult to photograph and kind of have to take your time, cover your lights, they're very light sensitive. Here it is opening, very interesting subject. Different jellyfish, I love jellyfish. There's so many different kinds. Literally, just if there's a place on the internet called the, the jellyfish base, you can go on there and just, just uh, you know, it's fascinating, there's so many different kinds. Here's another example of an isopod riding on top of a, a jellyfish. And this one, this is not Photoshop the colors. And this guy, these are the gonads, eight, eight gonads here. Some jellyfish are large. I've seen them huge, massive jellyfish. We get the big sea nettles here off the uh, Southern California and Central California coast, which I love to dive with. Uh, but this one here is probably, you know, a foot and a half, two feet tall, and maybe uh, 18 inches around. And then it's just got all of these fish living with it. So a lot of times you'll see these jellies moving along, and they're just like a little biosphere or a small habitat with crabs and shrimps and all kinds of things living in them. Sorry? They live on and in and around the jellyfish, so they're immune to the sting. These ones are drift fish, just a little drift fish in here. If you can see, there's like one, two, three different kinds of fish living with this guy. This one playing kind of hide and seek. <laughs> and they'll do that. This is an interesting relation. We see these types of jellyfish. I'm not sure if it's the Pelagia nocticula or nocturna. I'm not sure what the name is. We get, uh, we get them in, in our area at certain times. You're very thick and then... A couple days later, they're gone. So they're there, they bloom, and then they're gone. You'll see that with jellyfish quite often. Something triggers a bloom, and then they're everywhere. And then a couple days later, they're gone. So really an amazing thing. But we see a lot of these different fish, which were, are almost specific to certain types of jellyfish. Let's see if I can get the video to run. Here we go. So here's a jelly. And... I'm not sure what kind of fish this is, but we'll see them drifting along like this. This is actually shot very high speed and then slowed down again. Um, so it, it's a pretty remarkable thing to see. Now, the first time I saw this, I thought that this jellyfish or the fish itself were in a, a fight to the death. I, you know, I thought for sure that if that jellyfish had gotten around the, the mouth of the fish, it would, it would uh, suffocate it. But that's not the case. 
And what I've learned over observing these subjects over a period of time and consulting different scientists on things, I've, I've really learned that what happens here is these, these jacks select these different types of, of jellyfish, and then they stay with them over a very long period of time. They grow with the jellyfish. The jellyfish itself grows too, and it becomes a symbiotic relationship. So here it is swimming. It's a, this one, Physanostoma. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. I hope I'm not destroying the word. <laughs> Anyways, it's a very beautiful relationship between the two. Uh, the jellyfish, you can see how healthy it is. Very, very healthy. And then the jack that lives with it, also very, very healthy. And to see them swimming together, again, it goes back to the thing like, who's steering this thing? So the jellyfish is moving along, and then the jackfish is swimming around it. Of course, very excited with the lights and the people shooting photos. And he's pushing it around, and uh, it's just its pretty amazing. They actually have a little flap or a little uh, pocket on the underside of the jellyfish where the, where the jack can tuck itself into it. And it will, I don't know, sleep or rest? I'm not sure what it's doing in there. Yeah, so very, very interesting relationship that these organisms have, have developed uh, over the millions of years or however long they've taken to do this. Now, pyrosomes are, again, a very interesting subject. At the end of that video, we saw this big thing look like a large plastic bag drifting in the water. Well, that's kind of what these things look like. They're thick. They have a texture of a, of a wetsuit. I know that because I felt one. Like, what does this feel like, right? That has the texture of a kind of a wetsuit, spongy. But they can become enormous. Now, this one here is about the size of my thumbnail, very small. This is like a paint roller. In fact, that's what we call them, little paint rollers. And this is on the inside. So we have these paint rollers. It's conical. It's closed off on one end, but it's open here and fish shrimp, different kinds of subjects will go and shelter in there. So when you see that, you know, it's like, oh, it's a great target. You want to kind of sneak up with it and drift. You really don't want to swim too fast to these things because your pressure wave will make it begin to spin around and then make it difficult to photograph. So you just kind of work yourself up and start photographing. Now, these pyrosomes can start out, again, very small, of course. What they are, in, a, in essence, are colonial tunicates. So each one of these little polyps that you see is actually a tunicate, and they, they grow into this giant organism. So I've seen these as long as a stage, and that's no exaggeration, huge. They become massive, and they can live, I don't know how long, maybe 50, 100 years longer, I don't know. They, they've destroyed maybe through storms, propellers on boats. Uh, that's probably the only ways that these things would die off, I would imagine. And then, you know, because it's not one organism, it's probably not, not entirely dead either. So anyways, we've, we've seen these things from very, very small to, to massive. And here's my guide. I, I keep telling him, get closer. But you know, he's a little bit like freaked out from the whole thing. So <laughs> it was hard to, yeah, this one is probably half as long as the stage, really, really long. And you know, you're drifting along underwater. And all of a sudden, this huge, weird object comes drifting in from the dark through your lines, slow motion, and then you watch it and it just fades out again. And, you know, it's really a remarkable experience. Now, these guys, stomatopods, we have the mantis shrimp here offshore. And um, in different tropical areas, we also have them. They're, I think, worldwide except for the Arctic and Antarctic. But uh, these guys, 
very interesting subject, very tough. You know, if you want to you read about a really interesting subject on its own, Google mantis shrimp. They're very fascinating. In the open ocean, they're still in that developmental phase. And what we've learned is it's not only just in the developmental phase, but they also stay in the open ocean. So I think there's over 450 described uh, stomatopods in the whole family. And um, only a few of them, only a handful of them, actually go to the sand. The rest of them remain in the plankton, like this guy. So this is a balloon stage sea mantis. Pretty good size, maybe the size of a quarter. And from what I've read, it's going to just stay in the plankton. It just becomes part of the food chain. You know, whales eat it, uh, other organisms, fish. That would be a great snack if I was a trevally. You know, if I was a jackfish, I'd, oh, that would be really good. These guys are fascinating. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Alien, James Cameron, I think he designed the alien creature from this subject right here. The Phronima is, uh, is a parasitic little alien pram bug that swims freely, the males and females. The female will find a salp and she'll secure herself into the salp with her claws. She eats the interior of the salp and then she uses it as a nursery for her babies. So it's, it's pretty crazy. Her tail is sticking out here. She ambulates by kicking through the water. And most of the time, they're spinning around like this and then back this way. And all the time, continuously moving. You're like, oh my god, this thing's crazy. But they actually have four eyes uh, and just really an amazing subject. Here she is with her nursery inside. Here's all the babies. And here it is again. These are the live hatched babies. I was reading a paper on the pram bugs, and they actually have some very good mothering skills. They really nurture their babies to a certain point. And I read that, then I was actually able to witness this as this little salp, which is about this big, you know, maybe an inch long. The salp is drifting and slowly rotating, and the babies were exiting the interior to the out, and she was pulling them back in and stuffing them back inside continuously coming on the outside and then on the inside of the cell, moving them, putting them together like herding little cats. <laughs> Very fascinating. Larval fish, I have to say, are probably one of the mo more fascinating subjects um, that we see because they look nothing like the subjects that they're going to grow up to be and that we are more in tune to seeing um, on the sand once they're developed. They look completely different. So. Um, we'll just go through some of these images. This is a peacock flounder. And this guy is actually about eight inches long, no, about six inches long, which to me is really big. And I've seen six inch peacock flounders on the sand. So I don't know why this one is remaining in the plankton, but the idea, I guess, behind this developmental phase is, you know, that they'll feed and develop until they get strong enough to exist on the sand. So they have the strength to, to compete and to fight and to mate and do all the things that they need to do uh, while they're on the sand. So while they're in the plankton, they remain transparent. You'll see some of the colorations and uh, different designs, and that what makes them so, so interesting. So if we pick up a, a common identification book, they'll talk about uh, you know, maybe some spawning. They'll talk about the juvenile phase, reproductive phase, and terminal phase. This is really the three phases that we know about uh, when we look at an ID book about fish. 
they rarely go into talking about the larval stage or the settling stage. And this, this for me is the most, uh, I don't know, I've said the word fascinating so many times, but it really is the most fascinating uh, stage for me because the subjects are so beautiful. Different kinds of uh, flatfish. Now, this is just one quick subject. I have, a, like Jerry said earlier, a pretty vast library. Uh, so many different designs. A lot of these guys will have this little hooked appendage. And I made the mistake of posting this on Facebook and saying, oh, he was using his lure like this. And, and one of the scientists chimed in and said, oh, no, that's not a lure. You can't say that. It's not a lure. <laughs> oh, what is it? We're not sure. <laughs> OK, but to me, it looks like a lure. <laughs> Anyways, so this, this guy, you can tell it's really in a developmental phase because the flatfish still has an eye on both sides of its head. And this one, you could tell it's more, of a, more in the settling phase. In other words, it's getting ready to settle to the sand because the eyes have now migrated to the same side of the head on the top, and it's getting ready to settle. Yet it's still in the, in the plankton. I'm not, I'm not sure how long it's along. I'm not sure how far along the subject is at this, at this point or how much longer it's going to stay in the plankton. But, you know, it's just there. So we photograph it. <laughs> Here's one that comes head on. Uh, a lot of times, you know, the subject will be swimming around and just getting that timing uh, right when they're coming in to try to create a really nice image. Um, can be difficult, but once in a while you can really get it. This is another flatfish of some kind. And that green in the background is the lowest light on my downline. So that's at about 95 feet, I think. 90 feet. Some different flatfish. This one on the top I call Elvis. We'll see him around once in a while, and he gets this really cool plume on the top. Uh, this very interesting flatfish here. This is the same guy, different angles. And uh, this one, I'm not sure. I think this is another peacock flounder. Tonguefish are very beautiful. This one, this tonguefish here is a little bit different uh, than the ones I've seen in Florida. And uh, again, a little bit different than the ones I've seen in in different areas that I've, I've done this kind of diving. Um, you can see this lure is different. If you see this portion here compared to other fish, this is actually its stomach. So its stomach is outside of its body for this period of its, of its lifespan. And I think there's only two larval subjects so far discovered. One is a cusk eel, and the other one is, of course, the uh, tonguefish that have that. So whenever we see it right away, we know what it is. Uh, this one's from Florida. And uh, this comes in the Gulf Stream. This is the Gulf Stream off the uh, in the Gulf of California. It goes up the Atlantic coastline out across over to uh, Scotland. So this is a huge movement of water anyways. This guy has the stomach on the outside, beautiful spines, and probably about an inch long. Florida's really on fire for this kind of diving right now. They're really seeing some beautiful subjects there. But here's the Cuskiel, stomach on the outside of the body. Face is a little bit deep here, and a very, very fascinating subject. Again, maybe an inch long. And a lot of times you see these guys, and it's transparent. You know, you'll just see the color and the, maybe the outline of the subject moving along in the lights. And, you know, you have to concentrate on what you're doing, try to get your light on it in a way that it's not going to scare it away to cover your lights and, and, you know, shoot it the best you can. Make sure you're staying alive. Keep an eye on the line. You know, it's a lot of fun. Here's a better shot of it. You can see the stomach out. I think this is a little 
bead of oil, I think, uh, that at this stage helps it know it's up, up and down. Um, I could be wrong. This is a sea robin. I shot this a couple of weeks ago. I was in Indonesia hoping to get some really, really exotic subjects for this talk. I was able to get this guy, so I was happy about that. This is a stonefish, reef basilette. So this one is a very nice subject. They can get quite large, too. I've actually seen this reef basilette in the larval stage, its body almost an inch long. You know, and then you think, at what stage do they lose these streamers? And is it painful? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really, really bizarre. Gobi at the top, cobia, lionfish, beautiful lionfish. And that's larval stage are so very pretty. They hunt almost vertically in the water. And when disturbed, they'll start moving in a regular fashion and then kind of slow down. Really an amazing subject. This guy. Yes. <laughs> when these, you know, when they, when they grow to become an adult, they, they're actually smaller than how they started out as a larval stage. They, they're about four inches long and they live inside of a sea cucumber. Once they settle, they're going to find a sea cucumber and, and sneak in there. Two of them, not just one, will live inside of the, yes, you read that right. So, but this is, this is uh, what they look like in the wild. The body can be quite long, and then they, they, they'll get the streamer, the, it's the larval pearl fish. And, uh, you know, again, once, once you see them on the sand, well, you never see them on the sand, but once they, they settle, they're, they're only about six to eight inches long. So not really sure how that streamer thing works out. This is a pompano, and it's by itself in this image. I mean, somebody asked me before, did you see it by itself? Was it alone? And, you know, yeah, actually the first time I had seen them, they were by them, just by itself. The first one I saw was by itself. But after that, I had always seen them in pairs. And when you see these guys, the body is only three or four inches tall and kind of a diamond shape. But the streamers are so elaborate that it looks like a larger fish. So when it's coming in from the deeper water, the darker water, it almost looks like a larger fish. So it kind of makes sense in their world. Uh, as a form of protection, that it, it's actually pretending to be a larger fish. And a Moorish idol. Here's a, a soapfish, a barred soapfish, again with these really elaborate streamers. This is just kind of a head-on shot because it's so beautiful. Uh, the, the fins of these fish are so beautiful. If you've seen these guys in the book or in you know life, in real life, on, in, in, uh, on a dive, they are not a very pretty fish. You know, they're just not. They're kind of a scrubby looking. They always hide. They have a little beard. And that's the most interesting thing is they have this little beard, uh, a couple of little appendages that hangs down. And you look at it, and you go, okay, and you swim away. But as a, as a larval fish, wow, they're so beautiful. And they swim around. And bright gold, oh, just beautiful. Here's a, a scorpion fish. Again, these guys will, will hunt like vertically through the water and move very slowly until disturbed. And then, of course, they take off. Then you have to swim for it. Different types of, uh, this one is a crocodile fish. Anybody seen a crocodile fish? Tropical divers, anybody? Yeah, OK. So this will actually grow to become a quite, quite a large fish. And um, it's an ambush predator, so it'll be under the sand. A lot of times, the eyes are up on top of its head. You see that? And they'll just wait 
and wait, wait, and then if a subject comes along, but in this stage, they're hunting in the open water, trying to survive uh, and, you know, trying to do its thing. Anybody? Huh? Stargazer. That's right, stargazer. So these guys, again, eyes on top of the head. They bury themselves under the sand. Eventually, once it gets strong enough, it'll hit the sand, bury itself down, ambush predator, lion wait predator, and then waits for the subjects to come along. Poof. But first, it has to run the gauntlet of life in the plankton. And you think about these fish. How many eggs are spawning? When a fish, when they cast spawn, you're talking tens of thousands of eggs. But after the whole numbers game is played out, and you think about how many fish are actually eating and how many survive, you're only talking about one or two fish. Out of this whole spawn, spawning event, there might be just one or two fish that, that actually survive it all. Here's another lionfish. This is from the, the Majungan Channel in Bali, between uh, the main island of Bali and Java. Seahorses, amazing. You're, you're drifting along, and here comes a seahorse. What? What's a seahorse doing here? So, you know, there's, there are some pelagic seahorses that they've seen off the coast of, of Kona, but I think the ones that we see are getting pulled off the, the uh, coastline and the estuary areas, and because they don't really have a lot of strength, they're kind of waiting for that incoming tide to push them back. This is a very interesting subject. Now, in the beginning, we saw that video. It had that cool little pipe fish thing with all those appendages. So I really wanted to see one this year, and I was just waiting and hoping and hoping. Sure enough, I saw about 10 of them, <laughs> which is great. This is what they, they start out looking like. Small, ornate, has this beautiful tail. This one is kind of more developed, beautiful tail. This is what they look like when they hit the sand. Kind of like... You know, it's not that interesting. But here they are as the sub-adult. So this thing is a very ornate subject. It, when it, once it curls up in itself, it actually looks like seagrass drifting. Just looks like a little tuft of seagrass. And I don't know how many times I probably passed them up thinking it was just that. And one night, my guide swimming, swimming, waving his light, waving it, ah, waving it at me. Okay, okay. I came over there. Oh, my God. Wow, this is a, such a beautiful creature. You know, just, uh, it's hard to, to, to picture what this is like, you know, until you actually see it. Seeing it here doesn't really do it justice. So this will turn all around into itself, and this, these appendages here will be wrapped up in its tail. And again, it just looks like seagrass. Flying fish. So here we have a fish. That's the surface of the water. Um, another really, really interesting subject. Of course, we see them when we're out fishing on our boats or going out diving, you know, skimming across the surface and fish are flying off or maybe occasionally one might swim, fly into the boat. I've had that happen. Um, and, but this is what they look like in our area in the Pacific. Uh, they're just this beautiful, ornate fish. And at night, you can get up under them and uh, try to get these photos of them reflecting on the surface. The cephalopods are really part of the main event for us in our bay. And we're talking about this at dinner. And in a lot of places, said the cephalopod uh, population has really boomed uh, because of commercial fishing and the aggressive fishing practices where they're removing a lot of these uh, larger fish from the, from the food chain. The predatory fish that feed on the planktons are just gone. They're not there anymore. So a lot of, 
a lot of the subjects uh, like sea lions and, and whales and different kinds of mammals that feed on squid, that don't normally feed on squids, are learning to feed on squids. Anyways, my point is that in our area, a lot of the predatory fish have been removed. So we have this great proliferation of squids for us. It uh, it's, makes for great you know, uh, photo subjects. So this is a kind of a common behavior. We call this an inking or a smoking squid. So this guy, here he is here, they let out this cloud. And this is a form of hunting. And what they do is they, they let this out. And a lot of these squids will hunt in packs. Uh, the one we saw previous is more of a reef squid. For this one, it's kind of a reddish. We call, this is a, a pelagic squid. So it'll spend its entire life in the open ocean. They swim in packs, they develop in packs, they grow. You'll see them swimming together, 8, 10, 12, 20 of them coming in. A couple of them will ink out, and then a couple more will come in and grab the fish that are in that ink. So this ink stuns the olfactory fish of the smaller, the olfactory system of the smaller fish. So it stuns that fish for a few seconds, and then the squids can come in and nab them. So it makes it very interesting to watch and photograph. All kinds of different ones. Here's one feeding on a, a different kind of a shrimp here. Very colorful. I have my slides out of sequence. So here, here's that same pelagic squid feeding on, well, it's not the same one, it's one of its buddies, feeding on a, on a fish. So you have that squid, it inks out, and then one of his buddies comes in and nabs the fish. And what they do is they rasp down and they just devour the belly of these fish the, where the, all that fat is. And uh, a lot of times you'll see something shiny kind of floating in the water, and you'll think it's something, you know, and you'll go over there, oh, you know, it's a half a fish. <laughs> Octopus, this guy is feeding. I think we have a shot of this over in the gallery. Yeah. A lot of different octopus out there. It's, it's amazing in the water column. You know, a lot of times we see, of course, the octopus on the sand. But if you think about after the octopus and the squid, the paralarvae uh, hatches, it gets, gets goes out into the, into the plankton for development. And, you know, it spends a period of time out there. And octopus are the same. I have my theory about octopus, though. I think a lot of them are before they settle completely to the sea, and I think they're still coming up and feeding. I don't think they're giving up on their old behaviors too fast. You know, it's, you know how hard it is to give up on behaviors as a human. So why wouldn't it be different for an octopus? So a lot of these octopus, I think, are swimming up from the bottom at night to feed as well. So they're not only spending a period of time in the plankton developing, but they're not giving up on that so fast. It's a good, plentiful source of protein. So here's... Here's a, a matote or a blue ring octopus, and I'm just panning the camera a little bit with the slow shutter speed to give it a little move, movement effect. Long arm octopus. These ones are pretty, pretty cool. The body's very small, but the arms, and when you first see it, it looks like, you know, oh, wow, it's a really beautiful octopus. But then after it gets, uh, you know, like it wants to get away from you, the body will thin out, and then the arms are just extend very elaborately. So you have to kind of let it get away from you a little bit so you can get the whole subject of the frame. This one is the one that really kicked it off for me. It's the Settling Wonderpuss. And uh, it has this transparent body. Very, very beautiful. And for this guy, if you were to take the long arm octopus from the private prior frame and compare them with this one, this guy's not taking off. He doesn't swim very fast. Just kind of hangs out in the water. And if you want to shoot photos of it, he'll just kind of hang around. Very, very 
cool uh, customer, this guy. And, you know, as you can tell, beautiful to photograph. I wasn't sure what this was. I saw the first one in, I think, 2011 when my, my dive guide pointed it out in the water column to me and I shot a photo. So I sent it to a friend of mine at the California Academy of Science, and he's the one that identified the subject through the photograph. So what I'm trying to do now is um, I want to try to get some kind of a permit so I could actually uh, collect some of the arms off of one of the octopus so we can positively identify what it is. And the reason for that, I, I don't want to kill anything in the ocean, believe me, but sometimes you have to, and it's going to regenerate the arm. So <laughs> give me a little break on that. But there's, there's a lot of people that are, are arguing the point, no, this is not a, a wonder puss. And, you know, they're getting hostile towards me, so I want to try to put this thing to, to bed. Here it is again. And when this guy settles to the sand, he turns into this kind of a barred, golden brown, almost greenish subject. Has anybody seen a wonderpus? Martha, anybody else? Okay, so this is what they look like in the wild. Have you seen the larval stage? No. Uh, this is what they look like in the larval stage when they're still in the developmental phase. This year? Okay, so octopus have three hearts. All octopus have three hearts. So we have two of the hearts here, which are right behind the gill plates. And uh, they have a, a very poor type of blood, which is uh, cyanoglobin. And they, after they do the, gill, the gas exchange, the two hearts pump the blood outwards into the limbs of the subject. Then they have the third heart that pumps, pumps it around the body. But those are two of the hearts that are located behind the gill plate. It looks like aliens, right? It looks like an alien from the deep. Could be. Who knows? Yeah. You know, why do they have to fly down here in a spaceship? <laughs> deep water squids. This one is uh, a glass squid that I saw off of uh, a local island. And between our two islands, the one I'm on and the local island that I'm talking about, there's a very deep channel. And, and we've, we've done many dives over it. And see the glass squid there. And when I posted this onto the Facebook page, which I'll talk about at the end, um, you know, right away one of the scientists chimed in, you couldn't have seen that. Well, why? <laughs> I mean, what am I supposed to say? We did, you know, what am I supposed to say? There it was. Well, how deep are you? That's, you can't see that until you're at 1,200 feet. But, you know, um, yeah, we, so you never can't tell what you're going to see. This guy I just saw a few weeks ago in, in Indonesia, and uh, the dive that we were doing was in this small, canyon you could actually see the walls of the canyon dropping down to a very deep abyss and we had the lights there and the subjects were coming in uh, to this area and um, again you know the glass squid this guy's very small too and when it moves it looks like a little jellyfish so when you see it you're like oh how many times have i disregarded these guys thinking it's another jellyfish this one is very, very interesting. The, the diamond squid, it's a very beautiful pink uh, cephalopod. It's a squid. It looks like a piece of pink tissue paper in the water. When you see the, the very small ones, this one was the first one I saw. And I was deep by myself. I was maybe well past the recreational levels. So we'll just leave it at that. And using my light, I have a little torch. I'm looking, looking, looking. and what's this? There's just, and that happens a lot of times. These cephalopods will follow you. And I found this out to be true even on a standard night dive. They will follow your lights and hunt 
using your lights, and they're above you frequently, and you won't even know it. So this is what happened. I turned around quickly, and here's this beautiful little diamond squid, and it's all splayed out like that. Very, very pretty. Here it is, a little larger one. And after I started reading about these guys, you can, they're called a rhomboid squid, um, I found out they're actually monogamous. So once they pair up, they stay together until one of the two dies off or is caught. And then if that happens, the other one will stay in the same vicinity until it, it you know, meets its fate. So very interesting subject. A lot of times we'll see them together. And then a lot of times, again, we'll see them by itself. We'll go back to the same place. And you might see them over the course of a week. You might see them two or three times. And then they're gone for the season. But something really, really interesting happens uh, with these guys. They, they start out very small, of course, like everything, but they can reach these huge proportions. And once you change the angle of how you photograph them, something really remarkable happens. They become this beautiful, beautiful, I don't know what it is about the light or the angle, but as soon as you get over the top of them and start shooting downwards instead of at the body, they become something completely different. It's just a remarkable subject. So you can really see that diamond shape here, which gives it that name. And this is not a work of Photoshop. This is not pumping the colors. In fact, a lot of times when I'm editing my images, I'm taking away color because it looks so fake. Here it is again, just top angle down. Really remarkable subject. So case study, this last year, we're running pretty close to time here, right? Okay. Uh, this last year really had a, a great opportunity to study these, um, uh, the Argo, which is the paper nautilus. And here we see the male riding a Valager, very small. Remember how big that isopod was we were talking about in the beginning? Well, here's also a male, um, it's called the Ahyans, uh, riding the, the pteropod. And here it is again, male. If they have this thing called sexual dimorphism. Anybody heard of that? It's when the male is really, really small and the female is really robust. But the man can do his job. So here he is. He's all charged up. He's ready to mate. It's a seventh arm. And he's looking for her. This is the juvenile. She's got a little shell. The female is the one. The, the male does not produce the shell, but the female produces the shell. And they regard that as an egg case. You can see that up here. She does it with her third and seventh arm. Very fascinating subject. Here she is on a, a little, uh, um, I, forget the, <laughs> I forget the name, <laughs> sorry, pelagic tunicate. And uh, very small, maybe the size of uh, your thumbnail. But they can get quite large. This is a, a small female inside of a salp. I have to put a soundtrack to this. But you can see it. This is the female. You can see the shell here beginning to develop. And a lot of times we'll see them in these salps. And when I was doing research on these, on the one of the lines on the like the very end of the paper that I was reading, it says, the male A hyans may occur in salp chains. So when we were looking for these different subjects, we had already been seeing the the uh, the Nautilus in our bay for a prolonged period of time. We kept thinking that there were just a small octopus when in actuality it was the Nautilus. And this is what they look like when they're by themselves swimming through the water very quickly. You can see the, the shell here. 
Here's another one up here, riding a jellyfish, and this is about the same size, the male versus the female. The male, his arm, the seventh arm, is charged up and filled with sperm. All he has to do is touch the female. <laughs> Show's over, yeah. Touches the female, arm breaks off, and then he the, it's, uh, fertilizes the female. Then the young will be raised in that shell and eventually hatch. So very beautiful subject. This is about the size of a tennis ball. And remember, I'm shooting these subjects at 1 200th of a second. But I'm swimming at full speed when I'm doing it. So it's like running down the street at night trying to photograph a butterfly. It really, it's, it's really uh, fun. <laughs> It's a lot of fun. This is called stacking. This is something that I was able to see this year. Um, they stack in chains of six, 10, 12 together. Unfortunately, I was only able to see two of them together. But there was some nights where we would see 30, 40 of these things. Well, 40 is an exaggeration. 20 or 30, 30 is not an exaggeration, uh, of these together. And down deeper, I'm at about 100 feet, shining my light. All of a sudden, they just like explode apart and come rocketing towards you, bouncing off your head, off, your, off of you, off your camera, and then they're gone. And then other nights, they're very calm. They just kind of hang around and let you photograph them. But, uh, yeah, it's really remarkable. So here's the male, and, you know, he's probably very confused at this point. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> here's a, a good size. Remember my camera in the beginning? This is the lens. That's how small this gal is, right in a little banana leaf. And we're almost at the end, Jerry. Bear with me for a minute. Okay, blanket octopus. Anybody heard of a blanket octopus? The fabled blanket octopus. If you go on YouTube, you might see these videos, you know, people calling them sea monsters. Okay, that's the, the slide in the very beginning. The sea monsters. These are a re really, really remarkable subject. Uh, this is the female. Again, now in the blanket octopus world, or in the, the world of nature, the nature world, uh, the most extreme example of sexual dimorphism is with the blanket octopus. So the female can be up to 40,000 times larger than the male. Huge. I've seen the females six feet full of eggs and the male. <laughs> but he still does the job. <laughs> Kudos to that guy. <laughs> yeah. So really remarkable subject. The, the female can, um, what they do, actually the male and the female, they rip the arms or the tentacles off of uh, jellyfish. If you do the research on them, it says that they're using the arms of uh, man-of-war jellyfish, and they whip them around to protect and sting other organisms and then feed themselves, or they do it for protection. But we don't have a population of man-of-wars in our bay or in our local waters. So I think they're, they're going to use any cnidarian that they can. They'll, any jellyfish, they'll rip the arms off and they'll use them. This is what we see here. That's the jellyfish. This is the arms of a, the octopus. Remember, octopus don't have tentacles, only arms. So here's the arms and then the tentacles from the, from the jellyfish. Here's the male, very typical, swimming away. And here he is. Kind of, see this pose? Very common pose. They kind of sit back with the bell up and cruise. They're very regal, uh, just different than the other octopus. They can grow to large proportions. This one, this is, I don't, <laughs> well, it's way out, of, way out of size proportion. On my computer screen, it made sense. Okay, this female is about six feet long. And here she is full of eggs. And here's the male. All he has to do again is touch the female. 
and the arm snaps off and it'll find its way to those eggs, fertilize as many of those eggs as possible, and, uh, and we'll see. The male dies. Actually, what happens, it's, it's a longer story than that. This is, this is not accurate. This, these two aren't together. I just compiled them together just for size. But if you want to talk about it, get a book called Octopus. It's great. It has the natural history of all octopus. It'll tell you how they actually made. Okay, so uh, this guy's actually, this gal, is over six feet. This one is the size of your pinky nail. This is the male. So a huge sexual dimorphism. Uh, this video was shot by one of my guests. This one is about the size of a football. Very fast, very fast. You'll shoot them, and you're taking a few photos, shooting, shooting, and when they take off, and that's that, that blanket looks like Rocky the Squirrel, right? It opens up, and they can cast off that blanket at any time. It looks like a peacock. It's opaque purple and pink, has eyes, little oscillated markings on it. Just the first time I saw one, I was st I'm still talking about it now. It's like. My God, did I really see that? Yeah, they're real. They're just an amazing subject. Uh, you know, this here's one here, just enormous to, from tip to tip on the arms. It's about, you know, three feet, maybe 36 inches. And that blanket is a good five inches long in the body. On this one is the size of a football. Just an amazing subject to watch them move in the water. And uh, we had such a great run with these guys this year being able to dive in the same places over and over and see these guys and really get a good case study at the surface with the, the jellyfish tentacles. Um, just a wonderful experience. So thank you to everybody for coming out tonight. Thank you to my sponsors. And uh, any questions in the audience? No? Thank you, thank you. We'll take a couple of questions. Oh, Who has a question? Raise your hand. We'll bring you a microphone. Anybody? Okay. I got one here and then over there. Was it you? Who? You, you have the question. What's the fish? Which fish? Your favorite fish. What's your favorite fish? My favorite fish? Uh, yeah. You mean to see or to eat? I like goldfish. <laughs> I love all of them. Huh? I love all of them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> all right. Who, you got one there? Yeah. Mike, have... I'm curious about the diamond squid. Are, do they, are they pretty much pelagic, or do they come in? Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a pelagic squid. We don't see them in schools like the other pelagic squids. I don't, I don't think they multiply or have a population that's large enough to, to populate as quickly as uh, like the market squids that we would see here offshore. Um, it's not that type of squid. These, these get much larger. So I'm not really clear on, on how big their population is or um, you know if you can find them that close to shore. Where we're at finding them, we're still about 1,000 yards off of shore. I don't think you're going to see them on a typical night dive compared to the regular big eye squids that you'll see. Aren't you amazed that you've seen them in Florida and 
The Philippines yeah. and everywhere. Well, remember in the beginning, we talked about that top 600 feet. We're diving in that, that top 600 feet of water. So anywhere in the world besides the Arctic or the Antarctic, you're going to generally see similar subject matter. Got one right here. Thank you, Mike. It was beautiful, fascinating. I'm curious about the, the fish, or whatever they are. Um, <laughs> they're not fish. They're something else. That emit light themselves. Uh -huh. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is the composition of that? And is there any application of that to the human world? Those are questions that I'm not really... Uh, geared to answer accurately. What you're talking about is the comb jellies, and they produce light. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe to hunt, to attract other organisms so that they can uh, attack and digest them uh, and eat them. But as far as having like the ability to apply what they have in their bodies to, to help us, I, I'm not capable of answering that question. I really don't know. That's it's a good a, question. Yeah. You know the of the jellyfish in Prevagen that uh, claims it's improved short-term memory, but the FDA claims it's never been tested. So, but there there are a lot of things in these animals we just simply don't know. One over there. Thank you so much for sharing all your amazing images. Thank I'm a novice diver. I've done one night dive and it totally freaked me out, so I haven't <laughs> been back. Um, do you ever dive during the day? And if not, why not? I, I do, yeah. I, I dive uh, actually morning, uh, evenings, and night. <laughs> if you know me, I'm like, you know, for a few weeks out of the year, I'm not diving. I, I dive all times of the day. Uh, but my most favorite time is when the sun goes down, uh, things really start to pop. But I, I love the sandy slopes, and I love the subjects, and I'm fascinated by everything in the ocean. I mean, it's just all tied together somehow in a way that is not really understood, and this is just another piece in the puzzle for me, so I, I like to get out there and experience this first thing. I love the adventure of it. Uh, night dives are great, but eventually you're gonna wanna swim off the reef into the open water. Do it. <laughs> and you can see more of his images in our art gallery in the, the plankton there. One more. Anybody have one final one? No? All right. Before we thank Mike, the, the next lecture will be on the 20th of August. Volunteer diver Ken Curtis will be showing images from his 20 years of going to Yap Island. So we hope we'll see you then. And Mike, thank you for a thank great lecture and for your generosity. Thank you. Thank you. That was an amazing, amazing, amazing. Thank you, Jerry.